Welcome back to the Leading Edge of Integrative Mental Health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. Please review and subscribe to the Groundless Ground podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Radio.com, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and of course, find out more at GroundlessGround.com. I'm ready to go. How about you? My second dialogue with Evan Thompson covers his latest and most controversial book titled Why I Am Not a Buddhist. The book spotlights conceptual and functional problems with Buddhist modernism, Buddhist exceptionalism, Buddhist empiricism, and neural Buddhism. With his usual philosophical adeptness, Evan argues a cosmopolitan view of not-self and enlightenment and skillfully slays popular one-dimensional co-options of the Buddhist teachings by Robert Wright and Sam Harris. This episode is dedicated to Evan's father, writer and scholar William Irwin Thompson, who recently passed away. He was a man who profoundly impacted my life, particularly during my 20s, when I was deeply interested in the cultural evolution of patriarchy and modern humans' loss of connection with the natural world. May he rest in peace. Well, Evan, thank you, and welcome back to The Groundless Ground. Thank you. Good to be back. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff that I personally find amazingly interesting, and I really enjoyed your book, Why I Am Not a Buddhist. And I'll say right up front, you are a friend to Buddhism, so we'll just get that out of the way. (laughs) That's right. This is a quote from almost the end of the book. In some way, it just says so much about the purpose of this book. You write, the significance of the Buddhist intellectual tradition for the modern world is that it offers a radical critique of our narcissistic preoccupation with the self and our overconfident belief that science tells us how the world really is in itself, apart from how we're able to measure and act upon it. Yeah, that's at the very end of the book. Are you surprised that I started with that? No, that's as good a place to start as any. You know, so for people hearing that statement out of context, I could give some context for it. So it reflects my discussion throughout the book of a certain way of thinking about Buddhism that is very much tied to what historians call Buddhist modernism, which is the idea that we hear in many different places. Buddhism either isn't really a religion, it's a philosophy or an inner science or a therapy or a way of life. It's a religion that's superior to other religions in being rational and empirical and therefore more amenable to science. So the move that Buddhist modernists make, many of them, is to either try to render Buddhism as, an, as some kind of science itself or to use contemporary science to justify, validate one or another aspect of Buddhism. And, and those moves often use our present biases and preoccupations, for example, a kind of you know, narcissistic individualism in our consumer culture, to reinforce a distorted way of thinking about what Buddhism really has to offer as you know, one of the world's profound traditions. And, and so what I say it has to offer is precisely that it calls into question the kinds of assumptions and biases we are operating from, particularly certain easy ways that we think about the relationship between science and religion. The idea there that science could justify religion, you know, one religion could be more scientific than another. So this is something I really criticize in the book. Science and religion are different in the way that art and science are different. You know, the idea that you would use science to justify art doesn't make any sense. They're different 
they're both valuable. They're different kinds of projects, different kinds of attempts at human understanding. And that's the same for science and religion. So to try to use science to justify religion, specifically Buddhism, in a way that singles Buddhism out as somehow different and special from other religions, that's a Buddhist modernist idea that I criticize in the book. I'm so glad you went there because the second paragraph that I have underneath that quote is exactly about that, actually. You know, much of the critique in your book concerns what I call the sciencing of Buddhism. I remember firsthand experiencing the sciencing of TM and Marshi's Vedic philosophy teachings mm -hmm. in the mid-1970s. And it feels so similar because the philosophy is so much of what is missing in Buddhist modernism. In my textbook, I really tried to write the philosophy of Buddhism so therapists could Mm -hmm. really see what it is. But I could pretty much say that even while reading your book, I could see that people might think, even though I tried so hard, they might think of my book as Buddhist modernism. In my own case, I mean, that's where I started from myself in terms of my first book with Francisco Varela, neuroscientist and Eleanor Roche, a psychologist called The Embodied Mind, uh, which was published in 1991. So that was one of the first academic books to talk about, you know, Buddhism and cognitive science, the sciences of the mind. And read from where we are today, it has many Buddhist modernist elements in it that I now see in a very different light. So I think something you and I have in common is that we've kind of journeyed through these generational changes and these fields in a way where we've um, come to appreciate, you know, some of the genuine advances, but also some of the pitfalls. In writing Why I'm Not a Buddhist, I, I wanted to share with people how my thinking has really changed since the embodied mind and through my experience with things like, you know, the Mind and Life Institute, which sometimes very much sounds to me reminiscent of the 1970s kind of attempt to, you know, bring science and TM together. I mean, I, I remember that as well. And, you know, you can say, oh, well, you know, the science is better today than it was then. It's more rigorous. And, you know, the Dalai Lama is a more sort of sophisticated interlocutor than the Maharishi because he's more trained as a philosopher and interested in science. I mean, all of that is true, but it doesn't change the fundamental structural point that the attempt to bring these things into alignment in a particular way is, is very much reminiscent of, of that moment in the 1970s. From the inside, I can tell you, and I was young, I remember the moment where the shift happened. I was on a resonance mm. course. The videos they were showing us were the lectures Marshy had given in Humboldt in 1971, and all the lectures was Vedic philosophy. I remember just feeling so held in what I was learning. And of course, you know, we were rounding and doing a lot of meditation. But then a year later, when I was on a month long, suddenly a lot of the concepts from Vedic philosophy were gone. We weren't allowed to talk about them. We could only talk about the science. It, to me, this was a great loss science had come in and tried to verify something that on some level can't be verified. You have a whole chapter on enlightenment and this whole idea of verifying awakening. I wanted to just start by naming two concepts that are in your book. One is Buddhist exceptionalism and the other one is cosmopolitanism. And the book kind of goes back and forth arguing the beauty of cosmopolitanism and then this wrong-headed notion of Buddhist exceptionalism. Both of us have a great love for the Vedic teachings, the Buddhist teachings, and also the Chinese tradition. You know, we are both Tai Chi practitioners and steeped in the Chinese philosophical tradition. So I want to make sure that this is something you and I honor and hold in the conversation is 
neither of us, I think, ascribe to Buddhist exceptionalism. So Buddhist exceptionalism is the idea that I was mentioning earlier, that Buddhism either isn't really a religion at its core, or that if it is, it's fundamentally different from other religions in being rational and empirical. That exceptionalism is part of, of Buddhist modernism. You know, the book is in many ways uh, a critique of, of that idea, pointing out all the ways in which Buddhism is, you know, fundamentally like other religions in working with, well, you could say in working with concepts that aren't scientific concepts, concepts like enlightenment or awakening or suffering as it's understood in the Buddhist context is not a scientific concept. It's not something you can validate scientifically. It's a kind of ethical normative perspective. I kind of take the reader through an explanation of how Buddhist concepts are fundamentally, you could say, soteriological, concerned with liberation, salvation. That's not something subject to scientific test or scientific validation. And that makes Buddhism similar to other religions in having core ideas about meaning and life and salvation or, or liberation. And so Buddhism, uh, the exceptionalism is this attempt to sort of make, say, well, Buddhism is you know more rational than Christianity or more scientific. So a lot of the book is a criticism mm -hmm of that on the kind of critique side. And then the idea of cosmopolitanism. So I'm using that term really in the way that philosophers use it to refer to the idea we make up one kind of human family and it's important that we value and respect different ways of life, different religious traditions without trying to validate one or the other using science and rather the model, which was the original model for the Mind and Life Dialogues, is a conversation where we get to know each other and where we don't try to eliminate differences but we respect differences use the differences to always reflect back on our particular perspective and its biases, the conversation itself becomes a kind of collective mode of knowing. So cosmopolitanism is this idea. I mean, the term goes back to ancient Greek philosophy, but we see similar ideas in other traditions in South Asia and East Asia of belonging and identifying with the human community. And we could even, ex recent cosmopolitan writers even try to extend that beyond the human community to larger sentient community but that we identify as members of the human community in a way that acknowledges and respects there being fundamentally different practices and ways of life that are appropriate for different times and contexts and settings. And so the book is a kind of defense of that idea. The last chapter is really explicitly about cosmopolitanism. It's a way of saying also in relation to Buddhist exceptionalism that that cosmopolitan perspective provides a better way of looking at the relationship of science and religion and what's unique about Buddhism than the Buddhist modernist, Buddhist exceptionalist perspective does. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Two examples that you use to rebut Buddhist modernism. One is Sam Harris and the way he comes to Buddhism. And the other one is Robert Wright. He just interviewed me for his podcast. Yeah, we had a great conversation. I have a chapter in my book kind of critically engaging with his book, Why Buddhism is True, which I see as an example of the kind of naturalistic or scientific attempt to legitimize Buddhism. You know, I say some critical thing about Sam Harris and his way of trying to create a sort of scientific validation of Buddhism and of ideas like enlightenment and awakening. Those two people are also doing the opposite. I really didn't like Robert Wright using Buddhism to justify evolutionary psychology. Yeah, using evolutionary psychology to justify Buddhism as well. So that's something we, that he and I talked about. So I mean, I'm very critical, independent of anything having to do with his view about Buddhism, I'm very critical just in the cognitive science terrain of evolutionary psychology. It's a fundamentally flawed scientific research program based on mistaken ways of thinking about evolution and about how the human brain is organized. 
you know, evolutionary psychologists think that the human brain is organized into discrete special purpose modules that are in our brains because they were selected for in the Pleistocene epoch. So they really downplay the influence of culture on human cognition. Mm-hmm. I don't think the theory even is possible to test in a rigorous way, given the assumptions it makes about Pleistocene epoch and some kind of you know, unchanging descent of the mind in that period to the mind now. These are ideas that are very, very difficult to establish rigorous tests for. So I have a lot of criticisms of evolutionary psychology, apart from anything having to do with the science Buddhism dialogue. And so that means that then in the case of the science Buddhism dialogue, if you're going to make that dialogue happen with evolutionary psychology as your scientific partner, then you're already starting with a defective scientific framework. It's just not a productive way to do the dialogue at all. I take the reader through the reasoning for that in the second chapter of Why I'm Not a Buddhist. I absolutely loved it. And I really thought you countered the validity of evolutionary psychology very well, even more than the idea that Buddhism could even have anything to do with it, which in my mind, it doesn't. But then this takes us to two places. One is the idea of Buddhism as a science of mind. And then the other one, which dovetails with that, is like a Buddhist empiricism. I think these two things go together in some way. When you watch the Mind and Life dialogue, sometimes I always find there's this tension. There's like a tug of war going on between the validity of first-person perception and the validity of third-person perception. I mean, the, the idea of Buddhist science enters into those dialogues especially if we're thinking of the dialogues that happen specifically between the Dalai Lama and Western scientists. The idea of Buddhist science enters into the dialogue for a number of different reasons. What the Dalai Lama really means when he uses the term Buddhist science, he often means Buddhist philosophy. So he means the tradition of logic and epistemology that's kind of central to the Tibetan Buddhist curriculum that they inherit from the Indian Buddhist tradition trying to emphasize that Buddhism has a philosophical intellectual rigor that's comparable to the rigor of science. And I I think that that's unquestionably the case, that there is a rich intellectual Buddhist tradition of logic and philosophy that is a good dialogue partner for science, particularly for cognitive science. And then the Dalai Lama also includes in that meditation, where we get into a bit of a more problematic idea, which is meditation is a kind of inner introspection, inner scientific analysis and observation of the mind. And that is very problematic because in meditation, you undertake, depending on the tradition, this happens in different ways, but this is common across you know, all the traditions, you undertake a certain practice that's transformative, has its transformative effects because you're bringing to bear a complex system of ritual and a kind of conceptual framework to shape your body and mind in a certain way, ultimately in a way that's you know, conducive to a conception of nirvana, of liberation or awakening. And so the idea that you're somehow dropping concepts, you're observing things as they are in themselves, independent of any sort of mediation of language, culture, context, tradition, ritual. And that's very much how Buddhist modernists present meditation. That's a kind of rhetoric that doesn't match what's actually happening. The notion of science starts to function as as this kind of like rhetorical legitimization for meditation in a way that I think actually distorts what's going on in meditative practices. And then the Dalai Lama also, in these dialogues, on the one hand, he wants to have a dialogue with science and he wants to show the sophistication of the Buddhist tradition, but he also wants to bracket out 
what he would call Buddhist private business. That's his term, which is what we would call religion. Things having to do with like Tibetan practices of recognizing reincarnate lamas and advanced, you know, meditative practices at the time of death. That's the private business of Buddhists. And indeed, I mean, it is the private business of Buddhists, just as, you know, Christians have the private business of Christians. That's true. But the idea that you can actually bracket that off and separate it out when it's the larger meaning context of, you know, why Buddhists are doing what they're doing anyway as Buddhists, that only works so far. As you've seen, your experience of the Mind and Life Dialogues or the Summer Institute or other places where these conversations happen, like there's constantly a skirting around that. People are very hesitant to just directly confront but that's actually, in a way, one of the most fruitful things to think about. And it brings us precisely into the difference between religion and science. It's similar. Maybe you don't think so. But I feel like it's similar when science doesn't acknowledge that all science is based on perception. Even math, which appears to be a bunch of rules that make things work. It's all coming through human perception. That thing is never talked about in science. It's almost like the Buddhist empiricism you mentioned in your book is similar to the scientific empiricism, but they never really talk about the problem with both things. I mean, I think it is very true that science is a form of human experience, and it depends on our capacities of perception and observation, our ability to form social collective forms of knowing science is a social practice. People forget those things about science, and in a way it's the job of sort of philosophers of science to remind us about mm -hmm. those aspects of science. Um, but in the case of Buddhism, I think the, the fundamental difference for me is that Buddhism is fundamentally a soteriological, in a very strong sense of the word, a normative and soteriological practice. Its concern, its whole reason for being, and its evaluation of everything is in light of the idea that conditioned existence is suffering and awakening or nirvana is the cessation of suffering. That's not an empirical notion. You might say it's a fundamentally ethical or normative or soteriological notion. So when I say it's not empirical, what I mean is that it's not like you can go out and operationalize the concept and measure it. It's a way of looking at things that singles out some things as problematic and other things as, as valuable. Now, science itself does have its own kind of implicit ethics, but its orientation as a practice is very different from the kind of concern with salvation that we see or liberation that we see in, in Buddhism. Yes, I mean, Buddhism has elements in it that you could say are concerned with experience or empirical, especially in the areas of, you know, like philosophy and logic and so on, but everything is kind of oriented around this soteriology, whereas scientific observation is not governed by that kind of a framework. It's a different kind of empiricism. I love the quote you had by Bob Scharf, liberation is impossible, uh -huh. yet it's achieved. That's the fundamental paradox in a way. Maybe paradox isn't the right word. It's, it's a kind of enigma or conundrum is that nirvana by definition is the unconditioned, the sort of fundamental core proposition in Buddhism all conditioned and compounded things are impermanent. Impermanence is suffering. Nirvana is peace. It's peace because it's unconditioned. It's not subject to causes and conditions. It's not compounded. The idea is that it's attainable. So that's a conundrum because something that's unconditioned can't, strictly speaking, be the result of anything else. The idea that it could be an attainment as a result of the path 
doesn't make sense in a way if it's the unconditioned. And of course, Buddhists recognize this and Buddhist philosophers deal with this conundrum in many different ways, many creative, mm-hmm. generative ways. So that's what Scharf is saying when he says, you know, the paradox is that, of course, it's attainable. The third noble truth is that there is a cessation of suffering. But on the other hand, in a way, it's impossible as an attainment. It's not an effect of any cause, like following a particular path, though it is a result of following a path in the sense that you have to follow a path for awakening to be possible. So that kind of inner conundrum or paradox, which we already see grappled with in the earliest materials, is profound and points to the fact that Buddhism isn't like a rational system in the sense in which a scientific theory is a rational system. It's like its fuel and its generativity and its creativity is different. In that way, it's more like art than like science. But you point out beautifully that naturalistic Buddhists would skirt that entire issue, which they would have to do. Because for them, you could know exactly how enlightenment happens. You could come up with the exact steps to get somebody there, right? Right. Here's the way, and we are telling you exactly how to do it in a scientific formula, and we're telling you why this would occur in the brain. And your entire book is basically saying that just doesn't have validity. That's right. Sometimes people talk about, you know, like neural Buddhism or neuro-Buddhism. It's very much the kind of view that Sam Harris puts forward in his books. If you get rid of all the superstitious religious parts of Buddhism, what you have left is a kind of science of the mind. You have a kind of recipe and procedure for bringing about certain states. Those states are states of awakening. They are understandable in neurophysiological terms in the sense that we should, in principle, be able to determine like what exactly happens in the brain when someone undergoes this transformative awakening. I think that that's all completely mistaken and confused thinking. One reason is that the very idea of awakening is not a clear operationalizable construct or, or concept. So if we ask what is awakening and we then go to Buddhists for answers, we won't find one answer. Already in the earliest sources that purport to give us the Buddha's awakening, we have conflicting accounts of what that awakening consists in. Is it a kind of profound, cognitively structured insight into the nature of reality? Or is it an ineffable, non-conceptual state? Is it somehow both of those combined? Already the earliest texts profoundly disagree in the sense that we see different versions of that. And then as we see Buddhism ramify as a tradition, we get many, many different conflicting philosophical, rhetorical, ritualistic accounts of of what awakening consists in. To my mind, all stands to reason because the analogy I use in the book is that awakening is like love. You know, if we ask what love is, there is no one thing that is love. What love is depends on our concepts of love. There's romantic love and parental love. There's love for a pet and there's medieval courtly love and there's you know, love in the tale of Genji and there's all these different kinds of love. And there is no one thing you could go into the brain and measure that would be definitive of love. I mean, you need a brain to experience love and there's going to be physiological things happening, but they aren't in and of themselves love. They're love because of the wider context in which the community conceptualizes that as love. And I think it's exactly the same for awakening. Awakening is not a brain state. It's, it's a concept. What its meaning is depends on the tradition, the community of practitioners, and they disagree among themselves. Uh, it's natural that they would disagree among themselves, just as in the case of love. I mean, we're going to disagree for all sorts of reasons having to do with culture and social practices and 
so I think when somebody like Sam Harris thinks that, you know, there just is this thing called awakening and you could go find it in the brain, that just seems to me not the right way to, to look at it at all. When the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, he had a very personal experience. His mind kept showing up in all these ways that would get him to get up from the tree, which is a very basic experience so many people have when they have something they want to do and they put their mind to it. And you know, the mind is always bringing all these distractions. And every time a distraction comes, the Buddha did the same thing, apparently. He basically recognized it as the distraction it was, and it was unable to take him away from the project at hand, which was to just know mind. So, I mean, there's a number of things to say here. So first is, when we're reading the suttas, the suttas are literary documents that are at a remove from the Buddha. The Buddha in them is like a character in a novel. We have really no evidence about who the Buddha was as a historical human being and what he experienced apart from the suttas. And the suttas are already, you know, several removes from him. They already present his biography in ways that emphasize different kinds of things that put different kinds of things in tension. If they're not outright inconsistent, they're certainly in, in tension. So, According to one of the earliest texts, you know, the Buddha practices these other systems of meditation Absolutely. that look like they involve concepts from the Upanishads. Then he practices yes. asceticism. Then he strikes out on a practice of contemplation. And then the awakening occurs as a result of that original practice, you could say, that he's undertaken progressively, you know, various states of absorption. Then he has these insights, you know, existence is conditioned, it's suffering, you know, suffering is the cessation of the mental contaminants. That's all kind of richly conceptually structured, philosophical, you could say, thinking. There are other early texts that present the realization as this non-conceptual cessation of all mental activity. And that's actually the taste of nirvana in this life. And then full nirvana or, or nirvana without remainder occurs at death. With regard to like his getting up and teaching, this is something I talk about in the book, the text that presents to us the Buddhist decision to go teach what he's learned the story is at first he thinks, no, it's going to be too hard to get anybody to understand this. Right. So, you know, I don't want to go teach. Too difficult. And then Brahma, who's the Vedic god, and this is a, clearly a move on the part of the early Buddhist authors to show the superiority of the Buddha's path to the Vedic one. Brahma comes and says, no, please, please go teach. But this is weird because why would the Buddha need Brahma to convince him if he's, according to another story, been a bodhisattva for countless lives trying to attain <laughs> liberation so precisely he can go teach and liberate all other beings? Different traditions are going to emphasize different things according to what they valorize or, or prioritize. Like that's the richness, the different things Jesus says in the different gospels. That's how it works when you have a charismatic founding figure and all this generative interpretations arising from their message. So again, we've come back to the same place where we're both acknowledging that Buddhist modernism or even naturalistic Buddhism, it's a way to flatten that richness. You really can't have all of that if you say there's a recipe for this and it looks like this and we can explain that in neurobiological terms. That's right. I agree. That's a good way of summarizing it. 
you know, one of the analogies I use in the book, going back to problems with neuro-Buddhism, suppose you were to study in exquisite detail what's going on in Yo-Yo Ma's brain when he plays box cello suites. Well, of course, you would expect his brain activity profile to look different from someone who can't play the cello or novice player. Obviously, it's going to look different because he's a master performer. He's devoted his life to this. So from a scientific perspective, there's nothing startling about that. Of course you would expect that, that like his brain is going to be different. That's not really interesting from a scientific perspective as an idea, number one. And number two, you wouldn't be able to understand what's going on in his brain unless you already yourself knew about music and Bach and the cello, which have to do with history and tradition and practice. And the neural information doesn't tell you anything about that. You need to know the richer cultural practice history and, and context for that in order even to understand the significance of what you're seeing in the brain. So similarly, in the case of advanced meditators or in the case of anything we might call an awakening experience, sure, there's going to be something specific in the brain for an advanced meditator compared to someone who's a novice meditator. That's not a scientifically interesting statement. Of course, there's going to be. But looking at what's going on in the brain isn't going to tell you anything of fundamental significance about the nature of that state unless you already know a whole bunch about the history, the conceptual framework, the practice tradition. I'll give an interesting example of a way I feel like science and Buddhism or Buddhist practice could talk to each other. The amygdala is a great example. So there was a series of studies on compassion practice. It turns out long-term compassion meditators, like the monks, that kind of long-term, their amygdala fires amazingly hard when they are in the presence of some stimuli that looks or sounds like suffering to them. Cognitive science would tell you the amygdala only fires hard when someone's afraid. It's something about the amygdala that neither of these sides knows for sure, but can they talk to each other about something that seemingly appears to be antithetical? but may not be. I, I know we both ascribe to the network theory of the brain, but this one is kind of interesting. I'm going to disagree with how you put that. The amygdala doesn't have a specific function of responding to fearful stimuli. For one thing, the amygdala is a big structure, and so there's all sorts of subponents of it. But if we're speaking in very general terms, it's much more concerned with integrating things that have to do with perceived saliences, which aren't necessarily fearful, but could be other kinds of saliences. The interpretation of the amygdala in those terms won't really work. The study that you're referring to, if I remember the details, is that the meditation practitioners showed less amygdala reactivity, and I forget how they measured this, to certain kinds of saliences than non-meditators. That's interesting, but it doesn't really tell us anything. I think we're talking about two different studies. This was one Richie did, which, you know, the idea that the amygdala is about fear, I don't think it's true, but this is what psychologists, they tell people over and over and over again. I know, they shouldn't. It's not true. It perfectly stands to reason if someone has devoted their life to intensive meditation practice, that is going to have effects on the brain. It may also be they're drawn to that kind of practice because of pre-existing personality and biobehavioral differences. So it's like inferring causation is so straightforward. 
If you lift weights for hours every day, or if you run for hours every day, or practice Tai Chi, or do ballet, or play the cello, like anything is going to have effects. So that in and of itself is not terribly interesting to me. What's needed is a larger context of behavior and culture to understand what the effects of the practice are. Buddhists say that science is actually affirming not-self. What I loved in your book is you did a really good job of two things. You actually talked about how the concept of not-self has changed over and over in the Buddhist tradition. It's not just one thing. But also you connected that to the Sanskrit traditions that preceded Buddhism. So I thought you just might want to riff a little bit on not-self. Right. So, I mean, the idea there is that we often hear people say, Buddhism says there is no self. Science says there is no self. So science supports Buddhism better or more strongly than traditions that say that there is a self, like Hinduism or Christianity or Islam or whatever. The main point I make about that is that that's a, it's simplistic and it's cherry picking, basically. First of all, science doesn't say there is no self. Science says the self is a complex, multifaceted thing that's constantly under construction. The construction is biological, it's psychological, it's social. So there is no self if you think that there's like one thing inside that is the self. Rather, the self is an ongoing constructive process. When Buddhists say there is no self, what classically that means is that there is no unchanging essence of the person in either the body or the mind. What we are as persons is made up of changing mental and physical states, and there's no core essence. And they choose to express that as no self because self is being defined as core essence. As the discussion evolves in India, all sorts of issues arise around, well, if there is no core essence, then how do we explain the workings of the mind so that there's right. some kind of unified or coherent sense of subjectivity that makes action possible? Like, how does that all work? And you get Buddhist versions of the answer in philosophical dialogue and debate with Hindu versions of the answer. And of course, the Hindus are committed to the terminology of Atman because that's their heritage. And the Buddhists are committed to the terminology of Atman, no self, that's their heritage. But as the dis discussion and debate evolves, these concepts get changed and refined and revised in light of each other. So just to go in and like cherry pick out one thing and say, oh, here's the core idea and science validates that is just to simplify an immensely complicated and very interesting psychological and philosophical discussion over millennia and to simplify also the scientific discussion that's been going on past, let's say, century since William James and, and mm -hmm. other writers from whom we uh, Western thinkers uh, take our reference points in these discussions. The chapter is called A No Self Question Mark, Not So Fast. As I take the reader through the kind of ins and outs of that evolving India and then relate it to how we think about the self as a kind of construction rather than an illusion from the scientific perspective that we work within today. One more thing to relate it to that idea of cosmopolitanism you mentioned is that cosmopolitan perspective is one that looks at how traditions interact with each other so that they revise and enrich each other. So in the South Asian context, we have Hindu thinkers and Buddhist thinkers and Jain thinkers in dialogue and debate about the self. And the richness for the dialogue with science 
is not just the Buddhist strand. It's the way that the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Jains are all talking to each other in this common language of Sanskrit with a kind of common intellectual apparatus. The way that they're talking to each other around the attempt to understand self and no self, that's the interesting comparison point for science, not the sort of cherry-picked strand of Buddhism or of any particular moment in the history of Buddhism. Except I think we could both agree the cherry-picked Buddhist view is more convenient because it doesn't necessarily rely on something transcendent, which, of course, science would have trouble with. Well, but some versions of the Buddhist view very much, actually all versions of the Buddhist view do rely on something transcendent at the end of the day. I mean, nirvana is transcendent. The idea of not-self is very much tied to the idea of cessation and nirvana. And then as Buddhism evolves, we get ideas like, you know, Buddha nature, that's fundamentally an idea that has to do with transcendence, kind of innate, awakened mind. If we look at it from that perspective, there's nothing that makes the Buddhist ideas especially amenable to science. Um, There are examples of ideas that are concerned with transcendence, and transcendence is not a scientific notion. It's not that it's incompatible with science. You can uphold or invest yourself in some idea of transcendence, and you can be committed to scientific thinking, just as you can be committed to scientific thinking and think there's a whole other way of understanding the world through art. You can hold both together. It's a delusion to think that you're going to validate or ground the idea of transcendence in the scientific framework. That won't work. It's true. The beauty of your book is it's not simplistic. And you're critiquing the simplism that's been in this conversation for so long, which frankly, I have noticed in this conversation for years. The scientists originally focused very much on what came here from the Theravada tradition. And that Arbidharmic view isn't really transcendent. It's very much about these aggregates that happen to end up being true and real, which is a little strange. A Buddhist. Well, that's Until, a very Mahayana way of looking at it. You know, yeah, maybe it is a Mahayana way of looking at it, but what the aggregates actually are, and then the Abhidharmists basically saying, well, everything can be boiled down to these, therefore, not self. This is not self, that everything can be boiled down to the aggregates. This is not self. You could find a way to prove that scientifically, maybe, in a psychological way, meaning psychology is art, it's not actual empirical science. And I think that was the view I was referring to as not really needing transcendence. Mm -hmm. Well, even in the Abhidharma, I think the notion of transcendence is really fundamental in that the, the Abhidharma gives you a conceptual system that analyzes everything in terms of impersonal dharmas precisely so that you can practice disidentifying with mm-hmm. things as self so that you can, you can reanalyze the whole matrix of your experience in a way that shows that it's constituted by things that are fundamentally non-self and so should not be identified with as self. The reason for that is to attain awakening, which often in Abhidharma terms is thought of as a kind of cessation, the cessation of the aggregates. The aggregates don't arise. That's liberation, mm-hmm. right? So I see that as still very much governed by ideas of transcendence, and I I see it as a conceptual practice system for getting you to think in the right way, to reorient your thinking and indeed your perceiving if you deeply absorb it, Mm -hmm. so that you're no longer hostage to this idea of self. 
a scientific framework is very familiar with analyzing things in terms of constituent elements. So we could say there's a commonality there for sure. But from a scientific point of view, the idea that you would do that to learn how to see that everything is fundamentally not self, that wouldn't be the motive. From that scientific view, you're right. From a psychological view, frankly, a psychologist would just say to you at this point, well, that just sounds like decentering and right. depersonalization, right. right? They would just say to you, this is what right. we teach to not take right. everything so personally right. and suffer less. So you could see how from that perspective, that sentence could have literally yeah. come out of Buddhism. <laughs> right. So there we do get into some interesting places of contact and interaction where clinical psychology takes various scientific frameworks, explanatory scientific frameworks, and various therapeutic frameworks and combines them in order to guide treatment. Then we get into questions that are very much, you know, questions of the day now, where a lot of what we see described in Buddhist texts might be from a present day clinical standpoint, be viewed as pathological forms of depersonalization <laughs> or derealization or, you know, I mean, de there's decentering in a way that helps you emotion regulate and reappraise yeah. as terms are used. But then there's this kind of radical depersonalization that from a Western perspective would not be considered to be normative. It would be considered to be pathological. People, for example, report, so I'm thinking of like the research that, you know, for example, Willoughby Britain is doing, and undoubtedly, you know, you've interacted with this a lot in your own work, where people report very profoundly unsettling experiences that from a Buddhist perspective might actually be viewed as your realization is deepening, but from a Western clinical normative perspective might be viewed actually as deleterious and as harmful. And then, of course, a lot of it has to do with context, because our context is an individual-centered consumer capitalist culture, and the context of these Buddhist practices in earlier times was not. That cult was a very different kind of culture, and there was a larger support community for the practices and a different conceptual system to help understand them. So that's where I see the tensions happening in the case of those ideas. The normative versus the pathological. In a narrow sense, they're scientific, but in a larger sense, they're not. They're questions about our own vision of ourselves and what it means to flourish as human beings. Science won't answer that question for us directly. We have to, you know, we have to work that out in other terms. Yeah, I agree with you. Science, the way it's practiced now, even in the Western tradition, science was connected to philosophy for a very, very long time. That's true. Part of the problem with science is the nature of what science has yes, become. Yes, that's true, for sure. Not, not maybe in the case of individuals as scientists, but more in the case of a cultural practice, the unmooring of science from certain guiding ethical um, imperatives and values. I mean, we see that obviously in the case of the present crisis, the pandemic, which is linked to climate change and all sorts of other policy things. Yeah, linked to it, but nobody will talk about it. From the ethical point of view of Buddhism, that would be delusion. Yeah, that would indeed be delusion. That's right. You know, other traditions would also identify it as delusion. I just really want to say this. The research you were talking about earlier, difficult experiences in meditative practice. I believe people who've been clinically working with trauma and trauma response understand what trauma response looks like. And they also understand what somebody who grew up with freeze physiology is like in their adult life. 
And one of the things that I think almost all the yogic and meditative traditions like to do is to say anyone can do this. But what we've seen clinically is if you take someone who already has so much disconnection on board and is already spending most of their time in immobility states and you give them meditation, that is only going to increase this. This right. is pathological only in that the system is already pathological, not that the practice itself would be leading to pathology. In our culture, many meditation teachers, this is increasingly less the case now, but certainly when I was growing up, many meditation teachers would present meditation as good for everybody regardless. So now we know that that's not a good thing to say or to do. Also, I suppose in our culture, people who are in these unstable places where have experienced trauma for a number of different reasons, many of those people get drawn to meditation. Right. And so that's a problem. This is why with those people, we have them practice Qigong. It's better than yoga because it's integrative and it's usually social and there is no right. barometer for perfection you have to meet. It's a way to embody, literally embody when you're not very embodied, which of course is the cosmopolitanism, yeah. again, that I think we are pointing at that to say Buddhism has the recipe doesn't make sense when there are these vast, rich traditions with so much to offer. When I wrote the book, it wasn't that I was trying to tell anybody, oh, you shouldn't be a Buddhist. I mean, people who are Buddhists or who want to commit to Buddhism, I have no quarrel with that. It's more the way that that gets justified in our modern Western setting that I'm, that I'm taking issue with. The cosmopolitanism is presented as a kind of counter perspective, given that modern Western secular backdrop that Buddhist modernism is operating within. For somebody who wants to identify as a Buddhist, I mean, I, I'm not arguing that they shouldn't do that. Neither am I. You're really the only person I think who could answer this question. I was just wondering if Francisco Varela had lived longer, do you think that the way of conversation in mind and life and between science and Buddhism might have been different? Yeah, it undoubtedly would have been different. I mean, it's an interesting sort of like counterfactual thing to try to think through and imagine, but and, and, and I talk about this in the book, especially in the last chapter. On the one hand, he was very much caught up in a Buddhist modernist milieu. He was a student first of Chogam Trungpa Rinpoche and was one of the important figures in the early days of Naropa. Um, that was his entry point into Buddhism. He became disaffected with that community later on, as many people did. But that shaped a lot of how he entered and thought about Buddhism. He often made Buddhist exceptionalist type of statements. So on the one hand, he's like a figure in the sort of evolving and changing milieu of Buddhist modernism. But on the other hand, his vision of the encounter between Buddhism and science was very much not about using science to justify Buddhism. It was about two different traditions, two different rich intellectual and philosophical traditions interacting with, with each other in a conversational way they get to know each other and getting to know each other is just an inherently valuable thing. And they're free to challenge each other's assumptions and positions in an open-ended and respectful way. If he were to have not died in 2001 and he were to have continued, the dialogues would have had the benefit of, you know, his 
continuing vision of what was really at the source of the conversation. It's a loss. How exactly that would have then evolved? And one thing about Francisco is he was always an evolving scientist in terms of his research, and in, and he was a very philosophical scientist. He was an evolving kind of philosophical thinker. It's it's hard to know how exactly that would have gone. His original vision of the dialogues was that kind of conversation. He already pointed out the sort of dangers of either trying to use science to embellish Buddhism or Buddhism to embellish science or trying to use one to justify the other. He was aware of those pitfalls very much. He very much was a thinker who had strands of Buddhist exceptionalism in his perspective. Would you be willing to describe how your relationship with Mind and Life has shifted over the years? I was very much involved with a lot of the work that Mind and Life was doing uh, up until about a couple of years ago, and I, I haven't been directly involved in anything. And, you know, there, there are different reasons for that. Part of it is just a natural cycle and evolution where, you know, there need to be new voices and new people coming in and older people who've been involved for a while need to step out. My involvement with Mind and Life kind of began when Francisco Varela died. At that point, Mind and Life was moving from a very private mode of conversation into a much more public mode. And so I kind of got involved when Mind and Life was becoming much more public oriented. I participated in two dialogues with the Dalai Lama in India and then a number of events in the United States. And I helped design the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute, and I was in faculty there for many years. I suppose started to really taper off about five years ago, and then I'm still a Mind and Life fellow, but I'm not on any program or planning committees now. Partly that's also due to my work. I, I think of you know my work as mainly that of a philosopher. That's kind of the contribution I have to make. Mind and Life emphasizes that to varying degrees at different times, depending on what it's focusing on. Its recent focus has been much more applied, very concerned also with issues of diversity and inclusion and things like that. That's not something that I can really contribute to directly. There's a kind of just like natural way that we've kind of moved into different trajectories, I suppose. Well, in the last six, seven years, I mean, I've seen your role very much as bringing embodied, inactive, embedded view. Yes. There is no diversity unless you acknowledge how important being sure. in the world right. is. So when I hear you say, well, I don't think I have that much to offer. This to me is the crux of what you're trying to describe as the problem. It's the underlying deeper things that get missed. Right. The last two summer institutes I participated in was, let's see, 2014 and maybe 2016, if I remember. I brought that kind of an active perspective as, as the contribution. So it's not that I don't think that that's still relevant. It's more that I've given that already. And mm -hmm. it's important that, that that be part of the discussion. But I also think it's important for younger voices to be vocalizing that not always just me. And also, I mean, this is now maybe a more selfish way to put it is I'm sort of most excited by work that is new and challenges me to do right. new kinds of explorations. And I feel that those ideas, I've given them out to the world and the world needs to decide what it wants to do with them. And I, I want to move on to other things. You're an artist at heart. <laughs> maybe that's it. <laughs> right. This is what artists do, Evan. <laughs> I guess that's what they do. It's true. Yeah. We, we've said it. Let's move on. So actually, that was going to be my next right. question. I am so curious what is interesting and exciting you 
You're always at the head of the wave. Well, so there's two things I'm working on now that are, that are book projects. So one is a collaborative project with two scientists, one uh, a physicist named Marcelo Gleiser, who's at Dartmouth, and the other an astrophysicist named Adam Frank, who's at the University of Rochester. Uh, we're writing a book together called The Blind Spot, and it's, it's about a lot of things we've been talking about today with regard to science. It's, it's basically about how our present scientific worldview conceptualizes or puts up an image of science that removes science from its source in human experience. That's the blind spot. We did kind of an article version of this idea for an online journal called ION that I think it came out last year in like January 2019. And we're developing it into a book, talk about a number of different things ranging from like controversies in physics about the nature of matter and controversies in the sciences of mind about consciousness and life. And we end with a chapter on the biosphere and the Anthropocene. The other project I'm working on is a book about death and dying. There... I'm building on what I did in my book, Waking, Dreaming, Being, in the, in the chapter on dying in that book, mm-hmm. where I looked at the neuroscience of dying and death and the sort of biomedical ways of conceptualizing death in relationship to uh, contemplative and philosophical perspectives on dying and death from different philosophical traditions. Um, that's in the very earliest stages of writing. My working title is Death, the Great Transformation. It's probably several years before that like really pulls together. When you were describing the first book, I was thinking one of my favorite people is Roger Penrose. I recently Mm -hmm. heard him say, I'm a materialist. I just don't think we know what material there actually is yet. (laughs) Makes good sense. And I think it just expressed scientific view that is really deeply philosophical in that it acknowledges not just, I don't know for sure right now, but it's possible my apparatus is not equipped yet Mm -hmm. to really know. Yeah, that's certainly possible. Some things are within the scope of our conceptualization and and other things maybe aren't, that's right. It's hard to know where to uh, arrive at the line which is itself something conceptual. So there's a bit of a paradox in there, but yeah, no, that's right. (laughs) It would be arrogant to think otherwise. One of the things that you talk about in your book is this sort of infallible yogic perception, this kind of omniscient enlightenment that Buddhists are going for. Well, or that the Buddha is thought to have traditionally, that's right. And that if you had that, maybe you would know what the material actually is, which is always the carrot that they're holding in front of us, you know? Sure. The idea in the Indian context of yogic perception is you can directly perceive the micro elements and their natures as a result of advanced meditative attainments. That's right. I don't think that's an idea that that sits particularly well with our current ways of looking at things scientifically. That's, I mean, so it's another place where traditional Buddhist ideas and scientific ideas are very different. So that's what the Dalai Lama would call Buddhist business. Yeah but not what Robert Wright or Sam Harris would have us believe is what Buddhism is for. Right. They would see that as one of the traditional metaphysical ideas that a modern Buddhist should no longer uphold. In and of itself, I mean, that's, I suppose, you know, a position that many modern Buddhists uh, are going to take anyway, because 
religions evolve and they evolve in the context of modernity and they need to rearticulate themselves in that context. So some ideas, um, whether you're Christian or Buddhist or Jewish, some traditional ideas you're going to feel as a modern person you need to let go of. And so that would be one idea that many modern Buddhists would want to let go of. Not the Dalai Lama, who uses that idea sometimes in conversation dialectically, will use it. Not necessarily asserting it as true, but saying, well, this is a Buddhist commitment. This is how we Buddhists look at things. You know, the, the sort of advanced meditative attainments. Are you surprised at how science is losing its grip in the culture? I mean, this whole thing with coronavirus is just... It's mind-boggling to me how little sway science appears to have with so many people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's particularly the case in the United States. I mean, not just the United States, but I think the United States is suffering from that a lot, whereas other countries, you know, less so. I think that's symptomatic of a larger cultural erosion. It is a problem that manifests in the case of people's relationship or attitude towards science, but there's so many ways in which a larger kind of collective sense of a human project in which science has a role to play, that that's eroded on a larger scale. Now, it could be that something like a pandemic will actually bring people back together and remind us of the value of that larger sense of belonging and a larger human project in which science has an important role to play. If one wanted to look for a possible positive outcome, that would be one thing one might hope for. I'm not super optimistic about it in the present circumstances, but I could see how it might happen. People are just so disconnected from the way science is in their everyday life all the time and all the things that could not happen if we didn't have science to the extent where they would not believe what a medical doctor would actually tell them about what biology is saying about a virus. To me, it goes beyond the religion science conversation. I feel like science somehow has really missed the boat in culture. I don't know exactly how. Maybe you guys are gonna talk about that in this joint book you're all doing. I mean, I don't see science as to blame for that in the sense of scientists. I I see this as something that has to do with um, human short-sightedness in general and with political changes. Well, in the United States, really going back to Reagan. So the whole rise of Mm -hmm. conservative neoliberal capitalism, where values are fundamentally driven by economic imperatives and where there's a breakdown of a larger sense of, you know, social belonging. That's been in the works now for such a long time that, of course, Trump is a manifestation of the extreme breakdown that has happened in in the fracturing of, of communities. Although science basically left politics, scientists don't become politicians. Yeah. Is there anything either about your book or anything we missed? No, I don't think so. We think we talked about pretty much everything that's in the book. Well, I really want to encourage people to read the book, if not just to enjoy the depth and skill, frankly, of your ability to put forth philosophical discussion. I just don't think people are used to reading the way philosophers go through making their arguments. It's, it's beautiful. And I really encourage people to read it, even just for that. Thanks. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit brownlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.